Welcome to the Daily Theology Podcast, a podcast on the craft and vocation of theology. I'm your host, Stephen Oakey. In today's episode, I talk with Nicole Flores of the University of Virginia. In this episode, we talk about how an ice cream social and a public ministry internship helped lead her to study theology, the public role of the theologian, including at public universities, and her work on the intersection of theology and democracy. We focus especially on her book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy, published by Georgetown University Press in 2021. As a brief warning, we do discuss school shootings at two different points in this episode. On the technical front, over the next couple weeks, I'll be moving the podcast from our current hosting service to Substack. I already have a newsletter there, Okidoxy, which you are welcome to subscribe to. And it seems like putting the podcast there will streamline a lot of things for me. I think that will mean the end of the Patreon page, but I will keep up the Ko-Fi page. And I would like to give thanks to the anonymous Ko-Fi donor who bought me the delicious Earl Grey I'm drinking as I wrap up this episode. If you want to help with the next one, go to ko-fi.com slash dailytheopod or search for Okidoxy on Substack. Thanks for listening. Today on the Daily Theology Podcast, I'm talking to Nicole Flores, a friend of mine from Boston College, now at the University of Virginia. Nicole, thank you for being here. You're welcome. Thank you for having what, me. Steve. What was that? Wahoo wah. That's our cheer. That's your cheer? Do you <laughs> UVA, say that every Wahoo time? Wah. Do you say that every time the university is mentioned or? Yes. Yes. It's a requirement. Okay. <laughs> just okay. kidding. <laughs> I, it just, it, it, it seems like it's like if you say Ohio State University, someone has to yell the and we state it. It's like, it's like a, it's like a attendance O-H-I-O. requirement. I-O. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> So, all right. So UVA, wahoo So yeah, thanks for being here. I have long wanted to talk to you on the podcast in addition to just talking with you in general. So yeah, <laughs> um, likewise. <laughs> so I like to start by just first asking kind of a basic question, which is how did you get into theology? Oh, that's a great question. And even when you have a sense that it will probably be asked. <laughs> it's such a, you know, I feel like the answer for me is so big and so deep in my past. So maybe I'll start with a more proximate, you know, kind of how I ended up studying theology in the academy and not go back to, you mm-hmm. know, on the third day of my life, uh, <laughs> kind of <laughs> explanation of things. I did my undergraduate education at Smith College, and before I had arrived there, I'd experienced some really awful things in my community in in terms of life and death issues. So I'm from Denver, Colorado. So as you know, as you well know, Steve-O, <laughs> uh, but um, uh, in April 1999, I was a high school student at the time of the Columbine Massacre, and that was really really challenging for me in a lot of different ways. But five days after that, on April 25th, my cousin, Maria del Carmen Flores, she took her own life. And I'm still not to this day sure how much one had to do with the other, but it was a a real one-two punch for my faith. So Hmm. when I arrived at Smith College a year and a half later to begin my first year there, 
I was, I had stopped going to mass. I, you know, I should also add that Carmen was really very uh, Catholic and very on fire, not just, you know, kind of going to youth group, but very on fire with her faith. She mm-hmm. had gone to World Youth Day in Paris. She wanted, she was discerning a religious vocation. She was very, very mm. committed to her faith, especially for a person that age. And a part of me was, you know, especially at that age, I was so young. I, I just couldn't imagine how someone could be in so much pain and be turning to the church and that not be enough. And there was something about mm. that that just caused mm. a real rupture for me, not in terms of my belief in God, but in my ability to identify myself with the church. But I show up at Smith College. That's about 2,000 miles from where I grew up in Denver. And I didn't have any friends. (laughs) And I saw a flyer (laughs) for the Smith College Newman Association Ice Cream Social. And I love ice cream. (laughs) And I (laughs) wanted to meet people. So I showed up and found just the most amazing group of of fellow Catholics who were also, you know, at Smith College from a variety of different, not just, you know, traditions within Catholicism, but different political backgrounds, different ethnic, racial, national backgrounds. And we all just really connected on this really amazing level. And it, it kind of, you know, was important, not just kind of, but very important for for my journey back towards feeling that deep sense of connection and communion with with the church universal and from there um, i started you know just with my friends to take classes on like uh women mystics theology of love and you mm. know other other courses in our religious studies department that had to do with catholic theology and before you know it i was headed to divinity school to study more deeply. But in divinity school, and this is the second moment I'll highlight because I think this was kind of a two movement Mm -hmm. thing for me. So there was that moment, you know, that I just described of feeling that rupture, but coming back to communion with the church. But while I was in my master's program, I had a public ministry internship in Immokalee, Florida, not too far from mm-hmm. from where you are right now, Steve-O. And uh, sorry, not far from where you nope. are now, Steve. <laughs> and nope. um, Steve-O works. Yeah. Does Steve-O work on the podcast? Yeah. No, no. Um, totally good. Yeah. I find a lot of emails, yeah. Steve-O. So, Steve-O. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. so I, I went there in, in part to train how to take what I'd been learning in my master's program and studying for my MDiv at Yale Divinity School and put that into practice in relation to community organizing and what I understood to be public ministry. So ministry outside Mm -hmm, of the church, mm -hmm. but that was deeply grounded in theology. And while I was out organizing with the farm workers and protesting and, you know, making sure people were turning out for for events in support of the coalition of Immokalee workers and, and their goals, I found myself every night wanting to read theology, wanting to go back hmm. and read Karl Rahner, wanting to go back and write a theological reflection on what I had seen and experienced over the course of the work that I did that day. 
And I realized in that moment that the theological vocation that I was starting to discern this very strong call to was not in opposition to what I was doing on the ground, but it was distinctive. You know, I, I, mm-hmm. I know that there's a lot of debates over whether or not, you know, theology is necessarily an activist vocation. And mm-hmm. um, I feel that I have both calls and they're certainly interlaced, but they're distinct from one another. And while I was, you know, kind of exercising these organizing muscles, I was also realizing that the deep study of texts, the deep engagement with the tradition, the kind of even imaginative and creative thinking that goes into constructive work in theology, those were all things that I was being called to contribute to the the life of the church. So it wasn't too long after that, that I applied to BC and that's where we met. So (laughs) Uh, yeah. (laughs) <laughs> so you're saying you had both sort of like academic call within theology and kind of activist call within theology. And there's a sense of how those are distinct, but related and possibly even mutually supportive. Mm-hmm. Was there a moment or sort of a clear point at which you were decided that you were going to predominantly go the mm. academic sense? Or was it more sort of a, I don't know, sort of slowly like growing into you know, one call as compared to the other? Yeah, I think some of that for me didn't sort itself out until until I was in the doctoral program at Boston College that we both attended. I think that I had applied to the program with holding the, the possibility that while many people pursue you know, academic careers with this degree. I might have been a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of not thinking that, you know, a job like that would be a possibility for me. And also acknowledging that other, there might be other things to which I'm called outside of the academy mm-hmm. in ways to serve. And we call that alt-ac now. But, you know, at that time, I was just like, well, you know, maybe I earn this degree, I write this dissertation and, you know, really use it to enrich work that I would do in community activism. But I think it became clear to me that maybe even just my my personal <laughs> obsessive <laughs> habits <laughs> that that served me well in <laughs> in mm. graduate school also served me well in an academic profession. But also I love to teach, you know, so that there mm-hmm. were all these things that kind of lined up. And I think I just kind of lucked out and happened upon one tenure track position and then another. And I've mm-hmm. kind of been, you know, doing this work ever since. So so it feels like some of it was, you know, an active discernment of you know, what What sort of skills do I, I bring to the table? But also some of it was that it just worked out that I happened to be able to become a professor, which I, I, I see as a privilege and one that, you know, is increasingly difficult to, to find, which is, you know, it, it's awful. And I, I feel very fortunate, but also a little bit of survivor's guilt about, you know, having found a job that, you know, works well for me. Yeah, I said this to somebody else recently, but uh, someone said to me, this is several years ago now, but they said that getting tenure was the, is sort of like the symbolic transition of going from imposter syndrome to survivor's guilt. Hmm. Um, That's and, a good way to put it. Very apt. I, I, do, I do feel that way uh, in a lot of respects. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. 
one way of I, I think that I at least see you kind of navigating these, you know, twin vocations is public scholarship. Mm-hmm. And so you've written a lot for America Magazine. You write for people beyond, you know, the Academy and beyond peer-reviewed journals and that sort of thing. And I know, like, I mean, you mentioned this in your book, but I know you've written about this elsewhere. You live, you work in Charlottesville. You've written about the the Unite the Right rally there in 2017 mm-hmm. and sort of what that means in terms of, of place and democracy and ethics and theology and all of that. There's this, you know, as someone myself who's interested in public theology, there's this sort of interesting, I refer to it as like the double entendre of public theology, which is mm-hmm. there's there's writing about theology as a public discipline and, you know, what it means and, you know, these sorts of questions about should theology engage in secular reason to defend itself or is mm-hmm. it more, you know, it stands on its own grounds and all that. And so there's these, you know, often very theoretical and abstract conversations and I mean, my own guy, David Tracy, is really, you know, a part mm-hmm. of that and a lot of other figures. But there's also public theology in terms of, like, what does it mean to actually, like, do theology in public spaces? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think activism can be an element of that. And I think also just, you know, writing for and engaging with a wider public is part of that. And so uh, you're definitely a person I see who is straddling both of those mm-hmm. you know, senses of what it means to do public theology. Yeah, you know? yeah. It's really interesting to be in this environment of a public university as not just, you know, a Catholic intellectual, but as a Catholic intellectual, as someone mm-hmm. who is openly Catholic, which even, you know, my, my, some of my fellow, many of my fellow Catholic faculty members at UVA aren't necessarily, you know, if they're teaching, you know, a class in biology or, you know, in math, it doesn't really bear on their relationship Mm -hmm. with either their material in a direct way or their students in a direct way, even though, you know, I I think so many of my fellow Catholic faculty members really witness to their faith in ways that are subtle and they're there for those Mm -hmm. with eyes to see, but, you know, it's not the lead foot. But since I teach in the religious studies department, And the first thing you learn about me when you Google me (laughs) is that I'm Catholic. So all my students already know. And so a part of what I try to do in this environment is in addition to trying to show a faithful witness to like, this is what it means to, to be a Catholic intellectual in this environment and, you know, try to embody it however imperfectly, often imperfectly, and very, very imperfectly (laughs) uh, doing that. But also, you know, allowing my students to have space to reflect on the, not just the theological traditions, but the philosophical, the political, the cultural Mm -hmm. traditions that send them into this environment. So I try to leverage the fact that, you know, I wear my Catholicism all over, <laughs> all over me. It's mm-hmm. in every line of my CV. It's in, you know, everything that like, I'm even, you know, from a largely Catholic ethnic group in that I'm Mexican American. Mm-hmm. So it's really hard for me to pretend that I don't have this intimate relationship with my subject matter. So I just try to kind of lean into that, that reality and invite my students to whether they're Catholic or not to reflect on what's most important to them, what values, Mm -hmm. you know, animate them in their own context and here at the university. And how then do we come into conversation and the the values that that emerge from our specific, 
you know, backgrounds, how can they enrich our lives together in this community, whether the university or in our society at large? So this raises, I'm going to be honest, several questions for me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if any of these distinctions will make sense. But, <laughs> like these are the sort of things I was that were like clicking for me as you were talking about that. So one is, I liked your your note about there's something about being like a Catholic professor in general at a state school. So there's that one. There's teaching Catholic theology at a state school. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm, I'm kind of curious about that. And including if I know you were, you were previously at St. Anselm's in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. which is a Catholic school. And so I don't know if that gives you, I don't know if, I don't know if your time there gives you a sort of a sense of a distinction mm-hmm. or difference or, yeah. or, or not. So I'm curious about that. But then there's also, there's, you know, there's doing Catholic theology in a religious studies department. Mm-hmm. And I know there's a lot of range in your department. Mm-hmm. Um, and so those are all things I'm just sort of curious about. Yeah, um, yeah. In, in part because, like, I mean, I, I I teach at a Catholic university. And two of the things that tend to come with that in a ways that I, I, I don't think are surprising per se, but I wasn't thinking about, you know, when I was in grad school and looking for jobs and all sort of thing is, one... A lot of Catholic schools have this internal debate with varying degrees of intensity over what it means for the school to be Catholic. Mm-hmm. And there's different universities that have different answers to this question. And then there's universities that don't have an answer to it other mm-hmm. than kind of historical inertia. And like they don't know mm-hmm. what, what it means now. And in my own experience, what sometimes happens, and others have confirmed this for me at some other schools, is that the theology department becomes this weird sort of arbiter <laughs> of what that yeah. means. Mm-hmm. Uh, and like, there's the part of me that wants to be like, yes, I get to control this. And then there's the part <laughs> of me that's also like, it is a terrible idea to make this my question because it also ends up making the Catholicism of university just about theology, which is not how I would mm-hmm. think about it. Like, I think it's part of a multitude of departments and, you know, parts of the university and the mission of the university. Mm-hmm. And so there's there's that sort of piece about it. And then there's these sort of, I don't know, I think that there's tensions that sometimes arise about doing Catholic theology at a Catholic school and some of the limitations and expectations that can come from that. Um, mm-hmm. And so I was, I was thinking as you were talking, I assume that most of my students, especially my undergraduate students, assume that I'm Catholic, mm. but I don't point it out. I don't make a big yeah. deal about it. Yeah. And maybe I should, but I remember this class a couple, a year or two ago, it was an honors course, and I was teaching this section on scripture, and it's a team talk course. And I can't remember what it was that I was talking about, but I was sort of pushing students, and there was a student in there who I, whom I knew to be, you know, Catholic and active in campus ministry, but like, mm-hmm. she she had to ask me, is like, are you Catholic? And it was this sort of like, she I don't know, I think she was trying to like figure out, like, maybe how seriously she needed to take me. Um, or sort of adjust her expectations of all that. And I was like, and I, I was so thrown by the question, partly because like, I, I mean, I am Catholic. And I, I, I feel like I don't hide it in any particular way, but mm-hmm. I also, it's not a thing that I make a point of pointing out either. Yeah, no, th- this is all really interesting because especially in terms of the comparison between how things were when I was working at St. Anselm College, which I, loved. I miss on a daily basis. It's such a wonderful institution. So shout out to anyone from St. A's who happens to be listening to this podcast. But I found there that it was just kind of assumed, right? And the way that Catholic identity played out there for better, for worse was, 
you know, an assumption that for the most part, especially in theology, but in other departments as well, that that members of the faculty were either themselves Catholic or were Catholic educated or were deeply kind of imbued in like, you know, Catholic context. Right. So I, I never brought it up because it was just kind of in the material. Right. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I've been thinking a lot, you know, and trying to think in a disciplined way about like why I teach the way I teach, because I know it's a controversial position, especially in a religious studies department where most of my colleagues, regardless of their religious background, don't share with their, their students what those backgrounds mm-hmm. are. Like for, for example, our Judaism and Christianity and antiqu- antiquity faculty don't don't share even if they are Christian in part because they don't want students kind of assuming, oh, I have like, you know, the, the professors on my side, right? You know, mm-hmm, um, in, mm-hmm. uh, in the, the study, you know, of the scriptures that they, they teach. Right. Um, so I totally understand the, the reasons for not doing that, but I was thinking to myself, why do I do this? Where did I learn this? And it goes back to my time at divinity school when I was studying with Emily Towns. And Emily Towns, of course, similar to me, is a racially minoritized person. She's a Black woman. I am a Latina. And we're both racially marked. So we're already kind of living outside of that, like, perceived to be neutral space, like that Rawlsian space mm-hmm. of like, you know, oh, you're pretending that you don't know who you are. This, this kind of scenario, like, there's no way to pretend, right? But one of the activities she invited my class to do when I was taking a class with her, she invited us to uh, write a social location statement and just kind of put out on the table for ourselves, what sort of lenses are we using to approach this material? And even though I, you know, I've always been visibly on margins, both racially, but in terms of my gender, I never really thought through like, okay, I've been a Catholic my entire life how does that influence how I'm reading this material, right? So I think that was the first academic environment where rather than just kind of pretending like, you know, okay, we're all, you know, clearly coming from approximately, you know, similar places, we just kind of put it all out there and it became very evident really quickly, especially in an environment like Yale Divinity School, where people are coming from all over the place in terms of, Mm -hmm. you know, our backgrounds, that we were reading texts very differently from one another and bringing both limitations of some of our personal backgrounds, but also the, the strengths and the gifts of those of those backgrounds. And so when I'm in my classroom, even at this public university, I think it would be a failure to say, oh, and this class is about me being Catholic right? Like that would be mm-hmm. a problem. <laughs> but the, cl- the class is not about that. It's me being the first to kind of show, okay, I'm Catholic. Mm-hmm. I'm Mexican. Mm-hmm. I'm from Denver. I'm a Broncos fan, right? <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm yeah. particular. I, I am, you know, embodied. I'm this flesh. So are you. And we together are going to come to know something about one another and, their, and our particularity and then bring that into our conversations about these common texts and see what deeper insights can come forth from from that kind Mm -hmm. of conversation. So I think that's kind of why it's worked in a public university (laughs) context. And I haven't been accused of, you know, kind of stacking the deck for Catholic students. (laughs) Whatever. (laughs) Um, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's also, I mean, there is a real pedagogical value in, 
like we i mean i I, i'm sorry to use you know like the gibberish that we're taught but like there there is something about like metacognition and thinking about Mm -hmm. thinking and you know one of the things that I, 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 I try to work on this with students is, you know, to sort of think through what is the argument, but also think through, like, what is the context that shapes that argument? And so, like, I, I teach a class on on war ethics, and we talk about the just war tradition as, as a, you know, sizable part of that. But we also mm-hmm. talk, I, I try to get them to read and think about, like, St. Ambrose, you know, has this like pretty thoughtful and compelling argument and is, he has use of scripture and his use of scripture is different than, you know, like Tertullian's. And so what are possible reasons for why they have different interpretations? And at least one of them is their historical context. Like it matters that Ambrose lives in a post-Constantine world and Tertullian mm-hmm. doesn't. And it doesn't, it also doesn't mean that, you know, arguments are just, they're, they're nothing more than, you know, contextually determined positions, but, mm-hmm. um, but it helps to understand. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I, I like that balance of we're studying something and we're discerning uh, truth. And when we're studying ethics, we're discerning some sort of moral norm, right? We're trying to make arguments mm-hmm. about what the, what the norms should be. And, so that common element, but holding that intention with, you know, and when we are thinking in particular contexts, you know, we're not just taking one set of rules and applying them and getting the same result, you know, um, how prudential judgments uh, plays itself out in a particular historical context, cultural context, what have you, could be very different. And this is something we experienced at, um UVA this past fall when we experienced the, um, well, uh, a school shooting where three Mm. of our young students, three young men uh, were killed when they were by a fellow student, very sadly, heartbreakingly, were murdered by a a fellow student on uh, returning from a class trip. And of course, this event just, you know, had this monumental impact on you know, the rest of the semester. And honestly, it will, you know, continue to reverberate for for years to come in our, our community life. But it was an interesting time to discern and to model what the principles of mercy might mean in this context. Mm-hmm. You know, it was right at the end of the semester, everybody was gearing up for finals. And what people needed to get through to the end of the semester was very different case to case. You know, I had some students, mm-hmm. so we were giving broad latitude in terms of kind of reshaping our courses to make them more doable for students to, to get through. But I had some students who just wanted, give me what you were going to give me, right? You know, don't shorten the final, don't, you know, I, this is what I need to try to, mm. you know, kind of keep things together. Whereas other students were really struggling who had, you know, in some cases otherwise been absolutely outstanding, but, you know, say their best friend was one of the people who was injured or who was, who was killed, you know, sure. um, so trying to discern that, you know, it wasn't just an application of, oh, we all have to show grit <laughs> in this situation, yeah. you know, uh, the application, uh, you know, in the pursuit of mercy was something that we were experiencing in in real time. And at one instance where, you know, having a Catholic moral theologian around was, you know, a good thing <laughs> uh, to, <laughs> to help define, say, oh, what we're dealing with is mercy <laughs> and trying to figure out how to be merciful in this case. <laughs> yeah, that's good. That's good. I know something that you write about a lot and that you teach about a lot is ethics and democracy, including the sort of the role 
such as it might be of religion and a religiously mm-hmm. pluralist society within that. And so I'm curious in part about when you teach about that to a diverse religious background body of mm-hmm. students in a state school as a Catholic theologian, um, I don't know, how's it go? That's a great question. Well, one of my favorite sort of experimental spaces for how it goes is a class that I love to teach called Religion, Media, and Democracy. Mm. And we spend a lot of time in the first few weeks of class really delving into the theory of the relationship between religion and public life. And it's so it's a little bit counterintuitive because some of the students admit, you know, oh, I took the class because it sounded, you know, quote unquote, sexy, like, oh, we're going to talk about, you know, how media exploits religious traditions. So, you know, like, you know, fill in the blank for like some, you know, sexy topic, right. But we start with, you know, really in the weeds, theoretical accounts of of this relationship. We're reading Rawls, we're reading Alan Wolf, we're, you know, um, uh, Martha Nussbaum, Newhouse, we're, you know, we we really do the, some greatest hits of thinking through this relationship. And I'm always surprised by how, even though it's hard while, (laughs) while it's happening, and the students are, you know, sometimes resistant to, as they are in any class, you know, to, to doing that really hard theoretical work and that that deep delve that you need in order to kind of move on to a better mm-hmm. uh, engagement with the with the practical case studies later in the semester i'm always surprised by how how much students claim that they've learned in that segment of the class because they come in mm-hmm. thinking like oh church over here state over here or religion very flat thing that is they basically mm-hmm. you know no no shade to protestant christianity but in their mind it's like some you know religion is like stand in for a caricature of a conservative protestant christianity mm-hmm. maybe evangelical or like a you know conservative mainline protestantism and you know we kind of start even with just interrogating the word religion. You know, what does this concept mean? Where does it come from? Uh, You know, does everything that fits into that category even make sense together? And yet we're going to continue to use this very flawed concept to, to discuss how these particular ways of, of believing and acting and, and making meaning in the world influence how we live our lives together. So it's really very interesting and exciting to see the students kind of, even just on that basic term, leave the class with just a, a richer account of what it means for something to be a religion or not, and what it means to be religious or not. Um, so, so yeah, it, in general, it's gone pretty well. But I do think that there are some students even, you know, so fortunately, I'm not required to teach this class as a required class at all. It's not compulsory for students to take it. But still, you know, when s- students end up registering for it, who feel like, maybe this is not quite, you know, what they thought it was going to be. Like they want to maintain a very simple account, a very neat account of religion here, public life Mm -hmm. there. And they shouldn't meet. And whenever they do the the thing that we should do is, you know, tear them back apart because they do not belong together. But that, that has Mm -hmm. been very rare (laughs) that, that students have, you know, both come into the class with that view and also, you know, 
left on the other side with with that view. I team teach this course on faith and politics for our honors program. In the last two years, at least, I've co-taught it with a political scientist who is also Catholic and a philosopher who I I think he's culturally Catholic. I don't know that he's practicing Mm -hmm. anymore. And it's been very interesting, the sort of way that students engage with the material is there's a certain like reticence to take controversial positions, Mm. but especially in terms of they're often a little bit hesitant to sort of identify where they sit on things. Mm -hmm. And that's true to some extent religiously. I mean, the students who are Catholic will often end up saying they're Catholic. And students who have some religious background will like reference, you know, their parents or whatever it is. They're like hotly resistant to, you know, any kind of specific political identification. Hmm. Um, Even to the point of like being sometimes very circumspect about the way they talk about politics. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's, it's kind of fascinating in part because, and some of them will say part of why they're interested in the course and it's it's a first year seminar. So they're freshmen, largely freshmen who take it. Mm -hmm is they've always heard religion and politics are the two things you don't talk about with people. Mm, yeah. You know, they're like the dinner party, you know, like yeah. this is... This is Add to sex to yourself. that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> religion, politics, be, sex, just don't talk about them. <laughs> yeah, that'd be that'd be a different team talk course, I think. Maybe, <laughs> maybe we'll propose that. Um, and so it's, it's just kind of fascinating because they it's like they want to be in the room talking and thinking about it, but they're also still very kind of nervous about it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we like we, we actually force them to do debates where they they get some say in the topics. So like we have a list of mm-hmm. topics. They kind of pick which one they want to be on, but they, they get no say on which side they are on. So we flip mm-hmm. a coin. And that's meant to be somewhat freeing in terms of. You know, you can always say, like, look, I was assigned this. But it's it's interesting. And I, I don't know how much of it is they're freshmen. I don't know how much of it is we're at a Catholic school. Uh, I don't know how much of it is, you know, it's just, you know, the, the larger climate makes people nervous about, you know, any kind of particular hot takes on religion or on politics yeah. for them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I don't know if that matches your experience at all or or not, but. Yeah, yeah. I I think that there's some nervousness around it. But I, I think that I found, again, the, because the class is not required and we get, you know, people from, mm-hmm. you know, a broad cross section of the university, I think that some, you know, some of the people who show up really are there because they want to have the arguments or at least the critical conversation. Mm-hmm. And I found that those students have been pivotal to how I've tried to set up the course. Like I really rely on <laughs> the students who are willing to kind of say, actually, I disagree with that. And I kind of have this culture of like, you know, this is not a class where you try to figure out the thing that you imagine that I think about an issue and tell me that, you know, I want to hear what you really think. <laughs> yeah. And so I have a lot of students who come through the class who are really interested in that that kind of approach like yeah you know i have a lot to say or maybe you know i have a lot of conflict a lot of questions those are some of the the more interesting students to me i had a student without giving too too much detail away this semester who was themselves evangelical and still identified you know strongly as an evangelical christian 
but had really struggled with how to relate to this person's roommate who came out to them and Mm -hmm. was over the course of the semester really trying to work through you know, this question and kind of in in ways that were really humbling and maybe even terrifying for me as an instructor using the class. And, and the you know, we also have a very open structure where you're identifying your own questions and the issues that matter for you so you can talk about them. And both me as instructor and, and your fellow students are giving you feedback on your your arguments on on various topics. And it was really something to watch the student wrestle with this question in a very vulnerable way um, mm-hmm. in front of their peers, but also in relation to a professor who, you know, it's not like I told this person what my views were, but like you could probably imagine that <laughs> just based on you know, the fact that I'm a professor at a public university that I would likely identify myself as an ally to the LGBTQ community, right? And Mm -hmm. I do. So for him to have that kind of trust both with me and with the class, I, you know, I I don't know how to account for that. (laughs) I I don't, you know, I'm I'm not sure where, where that comes in, but I'm wondering if it has something to do with, A, the fact that they're you know, we have a couple of first years here and there, but I have a lot of third and fourth years um, mm, as well. So like sure. in contrast to what you're saying, like first years coming in and being, you know, ah, you know, just kind of freaked out about the environment. But also the fact that, you know, being a public university, religious studies is never going to be like, you know, we don't have one religious studies course that's required for everyone right. to take. And uh, sure. so people who are there by and large are selecting to be there and are kind of signing up for asking really difficult questions and and answering them in a community of some degree of vulnerability, which is yeah. really the, the fascinating part to me. Yeah, whenever people sort of talk about this concept of the classroom as a safe space, hmm. it's often you know deployed publicly as this kind of criticism of people don't want to have hard conversations or you can't handle my truth or whatever, you know, those (laughs) kinds of things. And I, on the level of, you know, like I, I don't believe in just not teaching things that are hard, like, you know, Mm -hmm. fair enough. Like we should teach tough ideas, but like the, the thing, and I, I often will explain to the students sometimes kind of partway through the semester, especially undergrads is that a lot of what we're doing, like the first third of a semester is just, getting you all to trust each other enough that we can do harder things later. Mm-hmm. Um, because th- there's this phrase that has stuck with me since I was in coursework at my PhD and it, it was, it was thinking with, and this professor I was taking for like an a- a- early Christianity course was talking about reading. I think it was Athanasius was, he was talking about with me about, about a project. He's like, it's like these, like these are really good letters by Athanasius to think with. Um, mm-hmm. And it wasn't like think about it wasn't it was yeah. like like think with them as like a partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I try to use that image for my students. You know, the things that you're reading are conversation partners and the people that you're reading with are conversation partners. Mm-hmm. And there's not this does not need to be a competitive situation in which the goal is to win or mm-hmm. to say the best thing or get the most brownie points or whatever mm-hmm. it is. But it's an opportunity for everyone to sort of think collectively along a path and part of that is you kind of see where the ideas go and sometimes they go into dead ends um Mm -hmm. 
and sometimes they go into places that have weird contrasts with other directions. And <laughs> yeah. Think with each other mm-hmm. and think through it. And floating ideas out loud is not the same as committing to ideas. It's, mm-hmm. you know, it's a process. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I think there's, bag. yeah, that sense. I, I love the metaphor of the accompaniment of this text is not supposed to just give you the answers and you memorize them and give them back to the professor. But there, there's something um, experimental almost in, in the way that, that you have proposed that, that interaction with the text, that there's a, a bit of trying on different ideas, which again can be, it can be very risky because especially for students with very strong commitments, religiously, politically, philosophically, what have you, uh, to try on an idea. And what's that, that Ted Lassoism? He's like, oh, we're going to try it, try it, try it on. Uh, it might have a very flattering silhouette. You know? <laughs> so <laughs> so this is, this, you know, you give this idea a try, you know, kind of see how it fits, see, you know, uh, and, and, but I do think that there's a lot of risk even in that okay Mm -hmm. i'm going to inhabit uh and not Mm -hmm. just at a distance but actually inhabit this way of thinking and especially if it's very different from where i come from this could be really terrifying Mm -hmm. Uh, and i think i think that's always been the case but in you know definitely in our times these politically fraught times that has been really very challenging for some of my students and also yeah. the side of some of the most powerful intellectual mind changing and personal conversion stories that I've witnessed in, mm. um, in the mm-hmm. academic environment ha- has been a student willingly, you know, being accompanied by a particular way of thinking and then deciding actually this is a flattering silhouette <laughs> or, you know, this mm. is something, you know, I want to take with me. I, that I, I want mm-hmm. to, um, to carry forward in a way that's personal rather than just at arm's length, something I, I read when I was in Flores's class. This is something that, you know, I want to make a part of my own way of thinking or believing. And that's, and that's something else <laughs> that's yeah. really powerful to me. <laughs> yeah. I like to tell students, you know, about anything I assign, especially if they're resistant to it. I was like, you don't have to agree with it. Mm-hmm. You have to understand it. Yeah. And oftentimes if it's something that you didn't like and you come to understand it, you might have a new appreciation for it or whatnot, mm-hmm. or you might also have a better argument for why you disagree yes. with it. But the sort of, yeah, the kind of like the arm's length, I know I'm not supposed to agree with that or, mm-hmm. you know, I read one sentence that bothered me and I'm, I'm done. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just not like a long-term productive attitude for yeah. students or academics and in general. Mm-hmm. So. Citizens. <laughs> yeah. Citizens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that actually brings me, I, I did want to ask you about your book, The Aesthetics of Solidarity, Our Lady of Guadalupe and American Democracy. And the focus of it is around the symbol of Our Lady of Guadalupe, and in particular, Our Lady of Guadalupe's role in Latine resistance and social justice mm-hmm. movements, yeah. its role in sort of envisioning or re-envisioning democracy in a religiously pluralist context. And so I'm wondering if you could kind of give the elevator pitch argument for why this image, which I mean, you can see one in the background on my on my bookshelf. Oh yeah, like look at that! I've got I actually got two. <laughs> I got two in here actually that were both gifts. But this image, how is it 
an argument for a democratic worldview hmm. or a democratic approach to citizenship and governance. Yeah, I've always had a hard time with the elevator pitch <laughs> uh, <laughs> challenge, <laughs> but I will I will do my best. So in one sense, I turn to La Virgen de Guadalupe in part because she's my particular symbol, right? You know, I'm Mexican-American. She, of course, is believed to have appeared on a hill called Tepeyac in Mexico City in 1531 to an indigenous man named Juan Diego. So very close association that 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 is really underselling it, like an essential part of Mexican identity is being Guadalupana, Guadalupano, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so I feel that strong connection. But I think part of what I was interested in, and maybe this is connected to what I was saying earlier in our conversation about teaching style. So I really wanted to think through what are the conditions for engaging not just Guadalupe, but, you know, the the particular contributions and expressions of religious traditions that that aren't my own. So in a, a certain sense, her image has to do with democracy because her people, whether you envision her people as Mexican-Americans or Mexicans or Catholics in general, or just anybody who loves her, which is, you know, actually mm -hmm. really far beyond anybody who would identify either as Mexican or Catholic, why this image? And in the book, I interpret it as an image that represents the lifting up the lowly, right? You know, the, the mm -hmm. lifting up of mm -hmm. the person who has been brought down low within our world. And within the context of liberation theology, I'm thinking specifically of people who have been materially made lowly by the systems mm -hmm. of domination and exploitation that that undermine the dignity of workers in our society, especially workers such as, you know, the farm workers who kind of <laughs> uh, sent me out on this this journey of <laughs> the, mm -hmm. this vocation of theological exploration, but also workers in other service industries where exploitation and denial of human rights even is very common. So I wanted to really think through that. So part of what I do in the text is what I call a political theology of Guadalupe and Juan Diego. And in mm -hmm. that part of the book, I argue that an essential part of understanding the meaning of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which is very like, there are a lot of different interpretations out there. If you start mm -hmm. Googling Our Lady of Guadalupe, you're going to say people like, oh, she's an image of conquest over, you know, indigenous people or other people saying, oh, she's an image of lifting up the lowly like I am or, um, or you know, an image of feminine empowerment or an image of, you know, the fact that women need to be humble before the Lord, like, you know, th there's a lot of mm -hmm. different interpretations, but I, I kind of propose a hermeneutical key in saying any interpretation we have of Guadalupe has to be done in, has to be examined in her relationship with Juan Diego as the person mm -hmm. to whom she decided to appear, right? Who was he? What circumstances and challenges was he facing? How did she empower him within a colonial context where he would have been the lowest of the low? And actually, one of the things he calls himself in one of the, the accounts of her appearance is uh, he calls himself the excrement of the people or the people's dung, right? Like he refers mm. to himself as literally, you know, the poope, to do another Ted Lassoism, <laughs> the poope of society. Like he is really... Not only does society view him as very lowly, he views himself 
as lowly. And yet Guadalupe mm-hmm. says, actually, in relation to me, you are you are somebody. You are dignified. You are worthy. And I want you, oh dignified Juan Diego, oh worthy Juan Diego, to go before the bishop and ask him to do this really huge thing of building a basilica in my honor. And of course, he doesn't think he can do it, but she continues to empower him and says, no, it must be you, right? So I I think within the broader context of our democratic order, there's also power in Guadalupe in saying, in seeing how she calls upon us as Catholics and other people of goodwill who love her to see that our democratic order requires that lifting up in order to pursue the conditions of equality that make a, a thriving democracy possible. So okay. there, there's that as well. <laughs> Is there a, a challenge to this approach in that part of the narrative involves ultimately Juan Diego having to go to the bishop? Mm-hmm. Like he has to go to the sort of hierarchical, mm-hmm. ensconced existing order as part of this. I mean, what's your what's your sort of response yeah, to that? As- yeah. Oh, I, I love that question. It's well, it relativizes that order. So one of the interesting mm-hmm. things I see in how Guadalupe is appropriated by U.S. Catholics is that our dear Catholic bishops in the United States often invoke her name and use her image as a way of kind of saying, oh, we're devoted to her. We love her. Mm-hmm. But if anything... Now. <laughs> yeah. Like, well, so who was kind of, not the villain, like there, I don't I don't like thinking of the story as having heroes and villains, but who who was the antagonist in, in this account? It was Bishop Zumaraga, who not only didn't listen to Juan Diego, but he thought he was some sort of spy or like person trying to do mm-hmm. harm to the church that, you know, the bishop had him tailed, like really distrusted Juan Diego. So if I'm a bishop in 21st century United States and I'm reading this story as, oh, I'm the lowly Juan Diego, mm-hmm. I would probably <laughs> push back a little bit. And again, without trying to villainize too much here, actually in this story, you're probably the bishop, right? Yeah. And what happens in this story is that the bishop is converted and comes to recognize the truth that Juan Diego is speaking. And that's amazing. That's something we could, we should all pray for, mm-hmm. that we come to see that truth that Juan Diego shows to us. But there is, a, as there is a lifting up of Juan Diego, there's a lowering and relativizing of the, the power and the certainty even of the Episcopal authority, right? Um, mm-hmm. So I would not see this interpretation as saying, and, you know, therefore, you know, all church authority is mm-hmm. is bunk, let's get rid of it. But it is, as I read the story and as I interpret it in the book, a way of chastening that kind of authority and calling for greater attention and attentiveness and accompaniment for voices on the margins, so to speak. Yeah, that's helpful. One of the things I I find so intriguing as like a contemporary example of where Guadalupe symbolism uh, arguably goes a little bonkers is, um, <laughs> and and uh, I mean, and, and it's partly like thinking about it in terms of your book and your larger work is that like I haven't read everything by the sort of Catholic integralists yeah. that hypothetically I could, uh-huh. but I know for at least some of them, somewhat facetiously, their hypothesized future 
Western hemisphere political order is it's like the empire of Guadalupe or like the yeah. empire of Arlita Guadalupe yeah. or something. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like, I, I don't know if it's deliberately missing the point or if it's a, a very weird alternative reading or, or, or I don't know, maybe, I, maybe if I read more, I'll be persuaded. Like that's a possibility, I guess, hypothetically, yeah. although I am yeah, currently it, dubious. The possibility exists. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which you know, as like I, which I, you know, I, sh- I should recognize as a good like, academic. Like, I haven't read everything. I could be wrong, but I'm, I, yeah. I, it's, it's a high bar to clear. But it, anyway, it's 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 interesting that it's one of these like in this sort of like this is one of the challenges of, of potent symbols is mm, the you know the yeah. multiplicity of meanings, yeah. and I think about this sort of this caution. It's in one of Tracy's books. I forget which one, where he talks about the image of the Exodus and how important this is for liberation theology Mm -hmm. Um, and God on the side of the Hebrews and freeing them from oppression under Pharaoh and all sort of stuff. But then he talks about how it's also a really important image for the Dutch who took over South Africa, Mm. but looking more at the point where you get to the book of Joshua in the story of the Exodus (laughs) Um, and, and how this symbol also has sort of a like, the problem of the richness of it is the way that it can be multiply deployed. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm glad that you bring up the empire of Guadalupe because I have such a weird relationship with it because in part, like um, I'm like, I'm down with that. Like my grandma's name was Guadalupe. Like picture is this the her? flag, like the flag would yeah. be great, you know? Yeah. But- yeah. Like, is this her empire? <laughs> but yeah. um, the, the challenging thing, and this is where, you know, is again, and it leads to some really interesting conclusions. Like, was this a Vermeule blog post? Maybe it was mirror of justice, but he talks about how, immigration policy should privilege Catholics in the, in this kind mm-hmm. of society, including people from Mexico, right? You know, so so there's mm-hmm. like this, a little bit of a fanciful, oh yeah, we're going to privilege Catholic immigrants. And yeah, some people might not tell the truth about how Catholic they are, but that's okay because, you know, they're coming in here and they're going to be a, a part of this empire of Guadalupe. And the thing that's interesting to me about this entire, that aspect of the Integralist Project, which I find endlessly fascinating, even as I'm a staunch critic of it, is that, again, like, there's no conversation with, like, my grandma <laughs> about, like, mm, what would it mean yeah. for something to be the empire of Guadalupe? So who's setting the terms for this empire? Well, it's still, you know, Zumaraga or his representatives. Yeah. So it's still people with a lot of power who are, you know, upset that dynamics have shifted in society that that make them feel, you know, threatened and disempowered, right? But there hasn't been that kind of like, oh, and actually in this empire of Guadalupe, well, Professor Flores, what do you think we should do <laughs> as, you know, the daughter of Guadalupe? Like that that wouldn't be a part of the plan at all. Mm. And I think things would go haywire if you started asking all the people named Guadalupe or who were, you know, the granddaughters of, or daughters of Guadalupe, like, how do you think we should run our society? <laughs> I, I think there would be a lot of conflict there. So so yeah, it, it is a very potent symbol. And and you hear my response even that I don't want to be entirely, you know, how dare they, right? You know, they, they're yeah. moved by the symbol. And if anything, introducing an interesting caveat into these very trenchant debates about migration in the United States, you know, like, mm-hmm. hmm, what would it look like if we allowed Mexicans to migrate freely, right? Uh, what kind of society would manifest? But I actually don't think it would, the society that would 
be manifest would actually achieve this vision that is proposed yeah. by integralist thinkers. Yeah. Although there's some diversity, internal diversity to their, their thinking as well. So yeah, um, yeah that's true. Yeah. You should yeah. have a whole podcast about that. <laughs> oh man. Or do you already? <laughs> no, not yet. There's some that I would be interested in talking to. So we'll see. But it's helpful for me too, in terms of just thinking about symbolism in part because my own, like I have a fascination with Joan of Arc mm. as this symbol of, I mean, it's a saint figure, but also as this like symbol of French Catholicism in particular. And mm -hmm. there's a lot of sort of internal difficulty in France about how to think about Joan of Arc because of the form of secularism in France and the way that mm -hmm. the symbol of, of Joan has been, you know, sort of co-opted by more right-wing elements in French mm -hmm. politics and all that sort of thing. But I, I have this question that I, I hope to pursue at some point. I just haven't been able to get the resources to do it yet. But I, I'm really curious about France had a, enormous colonial empire mm. across many different continents and across at different times, you know, all sorts of things. So like French direct control of Haiti doesn't even historically overlap with their control of Algeria, mm. for example. Mm -hmm. And I'm just genuinely curious if Joan of Arc in any way served as a symbol in some respects in these different colonial efforts, either on behalf of France, you know, fighting I don't know, the heathens or whoever else they want to sort of think about it. Or or if she was ever, you know, deployed by, say, Algerians in the fight mm. for independence yeah. in the same way that Joan represents France kicking out the English. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I'm just deeply curious if that's the case. And one of the things, too, I, I mean, this is part of why I think about it in terms of also think about Guadalupe is part of what makes these symbols so rich and also so tricky is as they become, in some cases, more attenuated from their originating context. Mm -hmm. um, you know, once Guadalupe becomes a potent symbol for someone with no Mexican Catholic mm -hmm. connection, it's not that that's a bad thing, but there's a thinning possibly that is happening that enables or, or eases deploying the symbol for other mm. purposes. Yeah. Um, yeah. The planting of these ideas into new soil. It's just, I mean, it's just an interesting thing, but it also allows for new characteristics that are not expected or that are different from where it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really interesting too, because a part of me, I don't know if, if this is allowed on this podcast, wants to like flip the tables and say like, what does Guadalupe mean to you? And, you know, kind of thinking like, yeah, there's validity there. Her symbol is so rich and actually to... One of the, the ways I've found productive in thinking about Guadalupe's significance and other symbols as well is uh, your boy Tracy, you know, thinking mm -hmm. about the classic and having this both stability and excess of meaning. And I, I think that's that's true, right? So, you know, do I, as a religious studies scholar and theologian, get to control the meaning of Guadalupe? Mm -hmm. No. <laughs> yeah. So, um even though I would say my contributions are valuable and can help understand what's going on. No, I don't get to control her meaning, right? And I think that a lot of people who find some sort of grounding in these very potent symbols mm -hmm. really resist that. No, I need to set the terms for what this means. And I think a lot of contest over the meaning of symbols happens in that kind of staking of one's claim. Mm-hmm. 
or the symbol. So I, I'm really, I'm glad you brought up the example of Joan of Arc because I think that's a really interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I do this thought experiment with my students sometimes when we talk about the concept of tradition. Mm-hmm. And I'll ask them, usually I, if it's the fall semester, I ask about Thanksgiving. Like, what are you guys mm-hmm. doing for Thanksgiving? And, you know, we usually end up focusing on food and that kind of thing. But I'll ask them, like, what other traditions do you have? And, mm-hmm. you know, I have students who, you know, come from like an Italian background. will talk about sort of specific traditions from their Italian family or from Latin families or things like that. And I'll ask them, and food is often like a helpful way to do this how much can the tradition change before it's not the same tradition anymore? Mm, mm-hmm. Like how far can you, can you bend it before it breaks? And, you know, one thing about Thanksgiving in the United States is there's, you know, there's a date when it's on and all of that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's this sort of overall tradition of things like Turkey and the things mm-hmm. that go with the Turkey and everything like that. And not everybody eats Turkey. We will do ham and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> um, and I get that. And so most of my students would say like having ham at Thanksgiving would not mean it's no longer Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. And so that's fair. But then it's like, how how far can I push this until it's no longer identifiably the same tradition? It's not clear. It, it's really hard to figure out. But that's just part of also thinking about, you know, one is traditions as shared practices and beliefs and, and rituals and symbols like Guadalupe mm-hmm. and things like that. And another part of it is, you know, the community participating in the ongoing passing on of the tradition. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like you talk about, you know, your mother and your grandmother and, mm-hmm. you know, what you've received from them and what you will pass on to your children and mm-hmm. grandchildren and so forth. And that's part of it too. But there are degrees to which like traditions start in real ways and traditions end in real ways. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so that's that's part of the difficulty, too. Yeah, know. well, and I think it's a broader difficulty for thinking about the unity of the church across mm-hmm. time. And I think that's at the heart of the debates about liturgy, for example. Like, you know, at what point is something no longer continuous with what came before, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and what what's an instance of that's more analogous to turkey or ham, right? I think in our, our culture, instances of that kind of debate are speaking to a deeper sense of, of fracturing and feeling... Mm-hmm disconnected but also power like who gets to decide that or is it something Mm -hmm. that you know is there's more room or capacity for differing interpretations but yeah i'm gonna have to borrow that one the turkey or ham yeah (laughs) uh uh, that and i i for the record am a hundred percent okay with you being in charge of guadalupe I, She's in charge of me. I would, I would, <laughs> well, I will defer is, to but... you. I will defer to you in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> I, I want to say thank you so much. It's been a great thank and a rich you. conversation, and I look forward to sharing it with everybody. So, yeah. yeah, thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure. This episode of the Daily Theology Podcast was produced by Stephen Oki. The music for the podcast was created by Matt Hines of the band Eastern Sea. The logo was designed by Ellen Stewart. Special thanks to our anonymous Ko-Fi donor for this episode. You too can support the show with a cup of tea by going to ko-fi.com slash dailytheopod. You can also support the show by leaving reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your shows. You can also follow us at Daily Theopod on Instagram and the social network site formerly known as Twitter. Thanks and see you soon.